0: All right so lastly we
1: matthew nineteen one through twelve also went to first Corinthians seven and Deuteronomy twenty four and all over the scriptures talk about this issue of uh, divorce and remarriage for the Christian we saw that there's uh, uh, the Christian for the Christian there's one exception to for them to pursue divorce and that's if uh, their spouse has some sexual morality involved in their lives they're allowed to divorce from Mary and God has broken the first marriage has dissolved it we saw how that is true in the Old Testament and in the New Testament um, of course if the two are believers and there isn't this exception of sexual morality they're not to seek divorce uh, and they do separate it's only to be for time and for the purpose of reconciliation we saw that from 1 Corinthians 7 and that if a believer is married to an unbeliever, um, they will stay with them as long as they want to stay with them. If they want to leave, they'll let them leave, for they don't know if they can stay with them or not. But as long as they're with them and willing to stay with them, they have a sanctifying influence upon them and upon their children. Their children are not unclean. And uh, we saw Paul's uh, warnings to consider not getting married because of the, the times we're living in, times he was living in. Uh, Our times aren't as bad as his times were, but they could get a lot worse real quickly. And so that needs to be an option for people. This shouldn't be an automatic thing for Christians that you're going to get married or that if you're not married, you know, when are you going to get married? You know, it's always this thing of wondering about that or treating uh, single Christians that they're a second class or that they're, you know, not doing everything or they're incomplete in some way. Um, But that's only for those who have been called to it. Uh, Only some have that gift. And uh, it doesn't mean you can't seek after that gift, but um, if you burn, Paul says it's better to be married. So we saw all these things last week, and hopefully it was understandable. You can see how it it flows with all the counsel of Scripture here, not just picking stuff up here and there and isolating proof text. It gives all the Scripture and makes it harmonize. Okay, this week we're going to go from uh, verse 13 all the way to verse 29. We're going to leave off verse 30 to next because it goes better along with uh, chapter 20. Okay, starting in verse 13. Then little children were brought to him that he might put his hands on them and pray. But the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and departed from there. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good things shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, what do you, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall, not, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. The young man heard that, that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Assuredly I say to you that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven." When the disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you that in the re- regeneration When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. Okay, so we see that these children are brought to Jesus. And we saw back in Matthew 18, we discussed this a little bit about this position of, of children here. And if we were to go to Luke's account of this story in Luke 18.15, you'd see that not only little children, the Pideon, were brought to them, but also infants were brought to him as well. Uh, That he might put his hands on them for the purpose of blessing them, according to Mark 10.16. And so in Matthew 18, Jesus talks about little ones, Pideon, who believe in him and not to cause them to stumble, not to drive them away. And here, little children are brought to him. He says, do not forbid them to come to me. So there's two different things being talked about here. If someone's already for me, they're believing in me, don't cause them to stumble. Very great danger to do that. And now he's saying, don't forbid them to come to me. And so we're dealing with children here. And, this is, and Pideon can really refer to anyone who's really below the age of puberty. That's really what he's referring to. It's a wide range of ages here. Uh, but we're to deal with children very carefully. Uh, we're not to forbid them to come to Jesus, and if they are believing in Jesus, we're not to push them away. Okay, so we'd be very careful. At the same time, in this day and age of apostasy, we need to make sure that they, when they believe, they really are truly believing. They understand what it means uh, that they have mental and intellectual understanding. So different things are being, uh, being uh, talked about here in Matthew eighteen and Matthew nineteen. Now the disciples rebuked them. Well, who do they rebuke? Well, according to Mark's account in Mark ten thirteen, they didn't rebuke the children. They rebuked those who are bringing the children to them. But it still shows the disciples' heart. They act as if the children were like a, a hindrance, or they're like an inconvenience, or they're you know this, they're, they're not that important. You know, don't don't bother Jesus. But Jesus said, "Well, they are important. Of such is the kingdom of heaven. This is they belong to the kingdom of heaven." You know, And so he was saying, let them company, do not forbid them. And so he put his hands on them and blessed them. And then in verse 16 we have this, uh, starting this encounter with this young, rich ruler. And what I want you to see throughout this, this whole encounter with him, going through verse 22, is that this young, rich ruler does not understand what good is. He does not understand what that means. And also, he doesn't understand who Jesus is it's almost if Jesus tries to give him a hint of who he is, and he doesn't get it. Proving he doesn't realize who Jesus is. So, behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? There are lots of people around the world who think Jesus is a good teacher. Muslims would say he's one of the greatest prophets. In fact, if I understand properly, I think the only prophet I think is greater than him is Muhammad. Um, You'll have Jewish people tell me they think he's a good teacher. Most people will tell you Jesus was a good teacher. The question becomes, do they really understand what Jesus taught? If they did, they wouldn't be saying that. Because if they did understand what he taught, they wouldn't just call him a good teacher. Now, he is a teacher, but he's not just that. And this man was not understanding that. Can you do a good thing to inherit eternal life? Is doing good deeds going to help you? after you've disobeyed God's law it won't remember all the law does once you have disobeyed it is condemn you no amount of obedience to the law will make up for disobedience will wash away disobedience will forgive you of disobedience will put aside the punishment you deserve for your disobedience so this young man is has things wrong right from the bat and so but Jesus kind of corrects him in a roundabout kind of way. He doesn't just, just go straight to it. and He does this a lot of times. And he says, why do you call me good? So he's asking him, why do you call me good? The young man never answers this question, as you can see. But he asks him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. It's almost like Jesus is saying, are you calling me God? Are you calling me God? If you are, you're, you're beginning to get it. But he's not calling him God because he doesn't even address it. He calls him just good teacher. And then... Jesus provides one of the ways to enter into life, and that is complete obedience to the law. That is one way. Guess what? None of us have done it, so it's not one of the ways for us. like that way is as soon as you sin, that way has been closed off. Its door has been shut. And so let's see if this this man uh, did this. Um, but before we get to that, if if he did this or not, I want to talk about this. This goodness part again, because Calvinists would have you believe that uh, no one has the ability to be good, or that we're totally unable to do anything good. That's not what Jesus is teaching here, and I want to go to one of the passages that they use. It's in Romans chapter three, and this ch- this passage is often used to promote. These ideas of total inability or total depravity. Now, of course, we all believe, like we just said, that once you sin, there's nothing you can do to forgive, no good deed you can do to forgive you of your sins, cleanse you of your sins, uh, pardon you of the condemnation of your sins and the punishment you deserve for your sins. But that doesn't mean you don't have the ability to, to do good. It does not mean you don't have the ability to believe. It does not mean that. So Romans chapter three. And Paul, and just to give you the context, Paul is talking about Jews and Gentiles here, as he, he is a lot of times. And in Romans three nine, which is where we're going to start, he says, What then? Are we better than they? Now who's the we there? And who's the they? Are we the Jews? That's what Paul is, better than they, the Gentiles. So that's keep that in mind. That's the whole point he's about to prove. That's the exact question he's about to answer. For we have not at all, no, not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin, as it is written. Now he's going to give some passages from the Old Testament that he's saying apply to you too, Jews. Just because you have the oracles of God, just because you have the fathers, just because you have the law, does not mean that you are not guilty of sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understand. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So these are quotes from the Old Testament, different passages in the Old Testament, from the Psalms, I think some from Isaiah. And what, what Paul is proving here is that both Jews and Greeks are sinners. That's it. You will see anything that says that you have no ability to seek after God, or you have no ability to do righteous things. He's simply declaring the actuality that no one is doing good, no one is living righteous as a whole. As a whole. Because we've all we all have sin on our record. So if God were to say the literal condition we have been in throughout our whole life, then we're all still sinners. But because God has declared us righteous by faith, which is what Paul goes on to talk about here, by faith our past sins are forgiven, we're cleansed of them, we're pardoned of them, they're not held against us any longer. Our debt, not been paid, but put aside, as we saw in Matthew eighteen, as if we had no debt. That's the way we're treated. But that's still there. He can reimpose it. We saw uh, a couple weeks ago in Matthew 18. So, But this, these verses don't prove total inability. They don't prove total depravity. They prove that all people have chosen to sin. And see, one of the reasons why you can't use these passages to prove that no one can be righteous or no one can be good in God's eyes, not as a whole, like they've never sinned, it, but in God's eyes, that they're good because he's cleansed them of their past sins and are now currently living righteous it's because other scriptures throughout the Bible that talk about men and women who are righteous in God's eyes so let's look at some of those let's look at Genesis chapter 6 now let's take you through a few of these I think we've gone through these before let's go through them real quick again Uh, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 9 this is the genealogy of Noah Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So Noah was just, righteous. He was perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. So when it talks about, uh, in verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of their heart was only evil continually. Is he including Noah in that? No. In that universal condemnation? No. He's not including him in that. He's different than the rest of them. In fact, if we go to Genesis 7, uh, 1, right before he gets on the ark, we see it says, that the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household. Why? Because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Does that mean that Noah had never sinned? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. But it does mean that currently, Noah was living a righteous life. Before God. He was perfect in his generation. He was a just man. He walked with God. And then we can go to uh, to Job chapter 1. Question, brother? Yeah, I'm
2: sorry. Now, oftentimes people will say, you say uh, what you just said, Noah, has possibly sinned in the past. Yep. But he's walking
0: with God then. And mm-hmm. doesn't Noah sin in the future by getting drunk or something?
1: He does sin in the future, and that proves my what we believe about perfection. That perfection does not mean you lack the ability to sin in the future, or that you, you don't have free will anymore. Does that mean you come to a state of perfection where you no longer have the ability to sin? It does not mean you have not sinned in the past. It means that currently, right now, your current state before God is you're walking in holiness. You know the Bible says about David that he was a man after God's own heart, but he wasn't a man after God's own heart while he's sinning with Bathsheba, while he's conspiring to have her husband killed. No way. Uh, Job chapter one. And so as we look at all these passages, we must, whatever we believe about the scriptures this issue, it must harmonize all of these things. It must harmonize all of these things. Job 1 1. There was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Blameless. Nothing to be blamed for. Upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. Job chapter 1 and verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant Job there is none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man one who fears God and shuns evil let me see in Job chapter 2 and verse 3 the Lord said to Satan have you considered my servant job there's none like him on the earth a blameless and upright man is after all these things that happened to him now uh, one who fears God and shuns evil and still he holds fast to his integrity although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause And even when his wife told him to curse God and die, he said in verse 10 of Job 2, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Job was a righteous man. And we can talk about David in the Psalms. In Psalm 7 and verse 8. David says, And the Lord shall judge the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. He's saying, God, judge me according to my righteousness. According to my integrity within me. And then we see in Psalm chapter 17, verse 3. You have tested my heart. This is David speaking to God. You have tested my heart. You have visited me in the night. You have tried me and have found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. And then we have Psalm 18, in verse 20, through verse 24. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord, and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompassed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. And then we can go to the New Testament, Luke. Um, chapter one and verse six, talking about John the Baptist's parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth and they were both righteous before God, walking all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord, blameless. So Romans 3 couldn't mean... Wait, really? uh, Luke 1 and verse 6. So Romans 3, when it's saying those things, it can't mean that no one has ever lived righteous. It can't mean you always have to be a sinner. It can't mean no one has the ability to live righteous. We've proven those ideas wrong from other scriptures, and if you believe those things from Romans 3, you're going to have a contradiction in the scriptures which there is no contradiction and so, what it does mean is that everyone has sinned the very point Paul is trying to prove to the Jewish people who are prideful and thought they were special and were not sinners like Gentiles because, you know, they weren't doing the things they were doing you know, the bigger sins that they were doing but they were sinners that's what Paul was proving to them And that's why he concludes in Romans in that that part, that section, with Romans 3.23, which we all know. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is the point he is making. And so it doesn't mean you can't be good. Uh, If you're in Christ, you are perfect in Christ, because your past sins have been forgiven, they've been cleansed, the debt has been put aside the guilt and condemnation of that sin has been put aside and now you're walking according to his commandments which you must do if you want to remain in him and so when Jesus says no one is good but God is he referring to good in the definition we were just talking about no he's referring to ultimate goodness ultimate perfection meaning never has sinned never will sin but when Jesus is talking in Matthew 5, 14, he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's commanding that thing, that very commandment. He's commanding the people who he knows have sinned in the past. And so we must have two working definitions here. That's what you see in the scriptures of what perfection, what good is. Okay, But the reason why Jesus said it to this, this young rich ruler is because he had a misunderstanding of what good is. And he's trying to say, Listen, are you saying I'm God? That's the point he's making here. Okay? and plus you can't do a good thing to enter eternal life unless you're going to keep all the commandments and so the, the young as we move on here in, in verse 18 now uh, we do know Jesus is perfect uh, so Jesus is not we'll going back to verse 17 just for a second Jesus is not saying that he's not good there's no way he's saying that I mean Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted at all points like we were yet was without sin was without sin, okay? So we see that he was without sin. Um, we could also go to uh, I think second Corinthians 5:21. I'll say something similar. Second uh, Corinthians 5:21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And I believe there's one in Second Peter here too. Don't quote me on that just yet. Second Peter, uh, chapter 2 and verse 22. Uh, quoting from the Old Testament here, he's quoting from Isaiah 53. Uh, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. So we know Jesus is good in the ultimate sense, as he's referring to in, in this passage, because he knew no sin, who became sin for us. Um, uh, he, in Hebrews 1 says, he loved righteous and hated lawlessness. And so, he knew no sin. He was good in the ultimate sense. He's cl- he is claiming to be God in this passage, if you combine with other passages, because he was good. And he's saying, no one is good but God. Well, then if he was good, then he must be God. That's how you connect the dots with the scriptures. And so he was good, and he was He was at, basically asking the young man, are you saying that I'm God? That's what he's saying to him. Yes. Meant to get a response, which he didn't get. And he says, "Which the young rich ruler says in verse 18, which ones do I have to obey? He's probably confused because of all the commandments the Pharisees are giving. Do have to wash my hands? I cannot pick corn on the Sabbath or pick some grain on the Sabbath? Is that a sin? Now he's saying, you know, the ones that he said, you should not murder. You know, all the, the commandments, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9. Okay? And, of course, he sums it up with, you said, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at other scriptures, that sums all of the way you should treat your fellow man. I mean, Jesus really could have just said that. And that would have summarized it all. And that's exactly what uh, Romans thirteen nine says, and Galatians five fourteen, and James two eight. They all say that your relationship with your fellow man, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfilled all the commandments in regard to how you treat your fellow man. And so we see it in other scriptures. The young man says, "All these things I have kept from my youth. What do I still lack?" So he kept these things from his youth, and that's that's a good point to say because. The Bible says people are sinners from their youth. and You can only be righteous from your youth then, too. So there's this age of accountability issue here. Okay? And he says he's kept these things. Now here, the question is, did he really keep these things? Well, maybe he did in letter, but he did in Spirit. I can guarantee you that. Uh, Matthew five twenty eight comes to mind. You, you lost after someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. He would, probably wasn't thinking about that. Uh, 1 John 3, 15 comes to mind. If you... Hate your brother, you're a murderer at heart. You know? And so the root of all sin in relation to your your fellow man is selfishness. That's why loving your neighbor yourself is the most important thing. And so he, he says, but he still feels like he lacks something. He still feels it lacking for some reason. Which is good. It's good. He feels an insecurity. And so Jesus is going to give him a command here and and you see, Jesus didn't touch on the first three, first four commands. And the first three commands are the ones that he really is going to touch on right here in, in verse 21. Uh, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So he's hitting at the root of this young man's problem, his idolatry. He's an idolater. And his response to it confirms that. He loves his money more more he loves his fellow man. So he doesn't love his neighbor as himself, does he? Because you say, go give it to your fellow man, the poor one. Give your great possessions you have. Give them to him. Help him. He says, I know, I know, I'm kind of sad about that. I'm going, go home, I'm going to go home and keep my great possessions. So he doesn't love his neighbor as himself. Not considering his neighbor. And he loves money more more he loves God. And what does Matthew 6 say about that? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. Remember, you have one spiritual eye. Am I focused on my great possessions or am I focused on God? Who am I focused on here? And so he loved his possessions. And the question becomes, did he really want eternal life? That's the answer. No, he didn't want it. He really wanted it. He would give up, but he was earthly-minded. He was—he wasn't heavenly-minded. He wasn't willing to store up his treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy, and thieves do not break and steal. But he kept his treasures on earth instead. And so he'll find it is that he'll lose everything. So he, he could have—he could have lost everything then and gained all things in Christ. Or he could have just hold on to everything and lose everything for all eternity. What's your profit, man? If he gains the whole world. He's not getting the whole world. He has great possessions, but he doesn't have the whole world. But if he did have the whole world, what would it profit him if he loses his soul in the end, which is what he's going to do? Now, we have no further stories about what happened to this man. You know, I don't know if he repented later on or not, and he got right with God, but he had a worldly sorrow here. A worldly sorrow. That his repentance would cause him to give up the treasures of the world. And in Mark 10, 21, when Jesus... Uh, gives a statement in verse 21 it includes taking up your cross and so when we are interpreting scripture we know when one passage has more information than another passage on the same subject it brings clarification okay and so we have this issue the question now here's the question I would have I have for you guys do you think this verse 21 if what Jesus is trying to do here is trying to show this man his idolatry does this mean that if you don't sell everything you have, that you're not going to inherit the kingdom of two? No. Because the point here is he's trying to show this man his idolatry. That's the point here. He's just not saying to you, if you don't go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, that you will not have, tre- that you will not have treasure, or you will not inherit the kingdom of God, or you will not be perfect. Um, rich, having riches itself is not sinful. It's what you do with them, and what your disposition towards them is, that determines... Your position before God, and uh, if we were to go to the, uh, I believe it's the uh, Mark passage of this. I think it clarifies this. Yeah, Mark, chapter ten, and verse twenty-four. After he had walked away, he was sorrowful. In Mark ten twenty-four, he says. Children talking to disciples, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. So, having riches itself um, is not sinful, it's not wrong. It's what you do with them, what your heart disposition is towards them. And I think Jesus said it right in Matthew uh, 6. Um, For where in verse twenty one, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What are you treasuring? Are you treasuring the things of this world, or are you treasuring God, the the eternal thing, the things that are going to affect eternity, and what happens there? Those are the things you should be treasuring, not the things of the world. But someone isn't more pious who roams around like a homeless man, dressed in rags, with no house no car, no money. He is not more godly or holy by doing that than someone who has a five-bedroom house uh, and has a paycheck and has cars. There's no piousness in having less possessions. And nowhere does the scripture teach that. And it's not teaching it here either. So he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. And Jesus says in verse uh, 23, Surely I say to you that it is hard for a rich man, or those who trust in riches according to Mark, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I say to you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now this is literal eye of a needle here. There's not some gate that's really skinny or really small. It's not what the Greek says here. How hard is it for a camel to go through a needle, all of you seamstresses out there? Impossible. And without God, it's impossible for all of us to enter the kingdom of heaven. all of us, but someone i'll tell you this I will say this about someone who has who has riches as opposed to someone who doesn't really have much. they're going to have a lot more temptation to trust in those riches, to treasure those riches, to store up the riches on earth than they do in heaven. a lot more temptation. There you go. There you go. Yeah, I mean, a guy who's poor as can be on the Las Vegas trip, who's gambled himself out of everything, he can be more greedy and covetous than a man who has millions of dollars. And so it's what you do with what God blesses you with is what matters. Uh, you look at the parable of the talents. A talent is worth a lot of money. And a man was given ten talents. And he multiplied it and got ten. Now, of course the whole point of that parable is not money. But the point I'm giving to you is that God gave in this parable, he was given many riches and he doubled it. There's nothing wrong with using your riches for the glory of God. But I think one thing we must get in our mind is if God increases our riches, increases our income, he doesn't do it so we can just spend it on ourselves. Uh, He does it so we can live contently and spend it on the gospel. Spend it on the kingdom. and On spreading his word. So, uh, it is, what's that? Go ahead, brother. I was going to say responsibility, right, too. Oh, yeah. And the Bible says if you can't handle earthly riches, why will God give you other things that are more spiritual, more eternal to handle? You need to be able to sh- prove to God you can handle temporary things that are not going to last before he'll give you things that are going to last. the more important things. I want to just go to some verses in Proverbs here. That's uh, Proverbs chapter 23. The first one I want to go to Some interesting verses here I think applies to this American dream idea Proverbs 23 4 and I see many men who do this I don't know any, I don't think any men in here do this but I've seen many men do this Proverbs 23 and verse 4 do not overwork to be rich because of your own understanding cease Men just work and some men just work and work and work get my children this and that and this and that. And, and their children are miserable with their possessions because they want their daddy. They don't want the toys and the possessions, they want their daddy. And so many men just work themselves to death to build up a kingdom on, on earth and it's going to fade away. Moth and rust will destroy it. It's not going to last. Um, so we're to be about our father's business. Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 20 A faithful man will abound with blessings but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. See, this position of this man talked about in here is being faithful to God. And when he's faithful to God, God will bless him. But those who have their, their, their hastening to be rich, their eyes are on the riches of the world, they will not go unpunished because they don't have God as their master. You don't have God as your master. Uh, And then we could turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And this is one of my favorite passages to use when it comes to prosperity gospel preachers. 1 Timothy chapter 6. So I I always have this passage on the tip of my sword when it comes to these issues here. Ready to go. Uh, Starting in verse 5. Useless wranglings of men, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself now godliness with contentment is great gain for we brought nothing into this world and is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare to many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition for love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O oh man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Lay hold on eternal life. So you see here, desiring to be rich, not being content with food and clothing and what God has given you with, not having godliness contentment, but trying to use godliness as a means of gain, having a love of money and desiring riches at the root of all kinds of evil and some having strayed from the faith by loving money by desiring riches have pierced themselves through with many sorrows and what shall we pursue pursue according to, to Paul writing in Timothy not riches pursuing godliness righteousness faith love patience gentleness fight the good fight of the faith lay hold on eternal life so these uh, false preachers out there these false teachers who preach the prosperity gospel that God wants you to be rich and they seek after these things, they even try to give you the motivation the primary motivation for giving, to them of course, is to you can be rich. And so you're pursuing this and you promote greediness and covetousness and Paul is saying don't pursue those things pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Those are the things a man of God should pursue. And this young man wasn't pursuing those things. To some degree, he was. But he wanted his riches more. He wanted his riches more. And it tells you a lot about these prosperity gospel preachers who are leading so many people astray. And the disciples, they were astonished because, you know, they probably had the same mindset that some prosperity gospel people do that if you have riches, you must be blessed by God. And he's like, well, well, if rich people can't answer the kingdom, they must be blessed by God. Who can then? Who can? See, we have left everything and followed you. We're not like him. We're the opposite of that guy. We've left everything and followed you. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly I say to you, in the regeneration. What's the regeneration? Interesting word there. <laughs> this is a word only used one all the time in Scripture. It's palingenesia. And it means, regeneration, it means renewal. It's used in Titus 3.5, talking about us, believers. And this is the regeneration of the earth, the renewal of the earth. And this gives very good credence to this idea uh, that I've talked about, and we've heard Pastor Tim Warner talk about, that when it says new heaven and new earth, not a new heaven new earth and time and space, but a renewal of the earth we're living on right now. And when does a renewal of the earth happen? When the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory. And when he does that, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now, interesting here is Judas is one of the ones being spoken to here. And there's twelve thrones. You know, so if he would have followed him, he could have been on the throne too. But we know he didn't follow him. He departed from the faith. He went astray. He became a devil. The devil entered in and He became the son of perdition. I Jesus, about Jesus at that time. No. No, he knew what Judas would do, um, but doesn't mean he wasn't extending it out to him. Yeah, I don't think Judas limited his knowledge about him. And we see more of this regeneration of the earth in Romans chapter eight, where it says in verse nineteen, "For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits." for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pains together until now. So they're awaiting uh, the revealing of the sons of God. And when is the revealing of the sons of God? When Christ returns and when will it be delivered from the the bondage of corruption at the revealing of the children of God that's when we'll have the new heaven and a new earth when the son of man sits on his throne in glory and so there's a renewal happening of the earth at that point in time and you can read more about that in Revelation 20 as well so you have followed me now and not just the disciples I mean that he's talking to them directly right then there's only twelve thrones at that point in time but We're going to sit on, you know, believers who are faithful will sit on thrones and judge as well. In Revelation 20, it says on verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them. Judgment was committed to them. So see that in Revelation 20 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 6 says, The saints will judge the world. Uh, In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 21, he's talking to one of the churches here. And he gives them a promise. He says in verse 21 uh, to the Laodicean church, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's offering them authority in his kingdom. And so there will be authority. Now, the disciples, the twelve disciples, will judge the tribes of Israel. And they're Jews, they'll judge Jews. I'm sure there will be Gentiles judging the Gentile kingdoms those who are Gentiles and then uh, we conclude uh, this passage we're talking about today in verse 29 everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake and Mark 10:29 20, says and the Gospels shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life and so of course, when it's referring to leaving houses, brothers, sisters, fathers, and mothers, it's probably referring to you know what you said uh, about leaving them in uh, Mark ten thirty. Uh, that you you're leaving you know these people who are your earthly mother and father, and we see in Mark twelve, uh, Matthew twelve forty nine through fifty, we say "Who are my mother, my brother, my sisters?" Those who believe in me, and so as you leave your natural family and come to the spiritual family, it's blessed it's blessed to be a part of that family it's different you have camaraderie you have things in common you have uh, like-minded thoughts and, and your spirit is like-minded as well but the leaving the life and children has to be a separate dealt with separately because God is not gonna go against what he's already said and <laughs> just a little earlier on that you're not to leave your wife unless you have no exception unless you commit sexual morality and so he's not going to come against that. You, I mean, you might leave your wife for a little while to go to Daytona Beach or to go to Mardi Gras or to go to wherever you may be going and leave your children for a period of time. But, yet, you know, you need to take in consideration your wife and your children and taking care of them and providing for them and spending time with them. And so, uh, you know, I don't think that would be lumped together in the same thing as leaving your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your houses or your lands. Because of what other scriptures say about these issues. And if you do, you'll receive a hundredfold. Be blessed for that, and you'll inherit eternal life. So he's reassuring his disciples that they're not in the same position that this young rich ruler is in. They have left all for him, including Judas, had left all for him. But it's only those who follow him to the end, in this 12, who will sit on 12 thrones of, of Judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. Questions, objections, or things you want to add?
2: Well, it is a, it is a joy we're uh, leaving your natural family. At the same time, it is a, a suffering. We're blessed. Or it's a blessing and a joy. At the same time, it is a suffering that we are uh, cut off from the, you know, Sure. Because they're of the world and, and uh, spiritually speaking. Mm-hmm. And we reject. Right.
1: Yeah, Luke twelve forty nine and fifty, or Luke twelve. I'm sorry, Luke twelve. Luke fourteen twenty six talks about the if you don't hate your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, you cannot be my disciple. You know. So we see that in Luke fourteen. I'll just read it real quick. Uh, starting in verse 26 if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother wife and children brothers and sisters yes in his own life also he cannot be my disciple of course now he's not saying he literally wants you to hate someone that's sinful to hate someone but comparing your love for him to your love for anyone anything else should be like comparing love to hatred can you say that? can you say that you love God that much that you it would be like comparing love to hate for your wife or for your children? can you say that? Because if you can't say that, you can't be his disciple. Nor does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? Instead of he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man who began to build was not able to finish. Okay? Good question to ask yourself, friends, because what if a time came that God, through persecution, allowed your wife and children to be tortured and destroyed? Or someone else in your family, if the other way around? Would you depart from God? Would you get bitter and angry at God and say, God, why would you let this happen? I can't believe you let this happen. I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Careful. Careful.
0: Do they have, them. have treasures or do they have you? Because right. uh, the Lord, we want to hear that well-done, good, and faithful steward. And that's what changes, you know, where, where the, like, the rich, that, that rich man, they had him. Yeah. Um, he could have changed. It, it wasn't that the, the things that he had were, were evil themselves. Right. Right. But they had control of him. But he could have changed and become steward over them. Right. You know, right. instead of him, him, you know, possessing them. Right. Then,
1: And one other thing to consider in regards to whether rich, having riches is evil or not is you have to understand God owns it all, yeah. and God's not evil. Uh, so having riches itself is not being evil. It's what whether you, the riches have you or whether you have the riches. Brother Kevin said that's that's the point. There's a proverb here I've always liked, uh, Proverbs thirty,
2: verses seven through nine, it says. Two things I request of you. Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehoods and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me. Lest I be full and deny you. And say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and sealed for the name of my God. And again, I was just showing you one kind that's of little ground. There. Yeah, that's good. And you saw the people get poor a long time in the Old Testament. And then we get all fat and happy with their, their riches. And then they go God. And right. And start thinking. Right. Just, you know, part of our uh, warning also. That's good.
0: Right. I, I had a question about, about the, uh, when you were talking about uh, David, Psalm 7, 18, mm-hmm. those verses where David is uh, declaring his righteousness, judging his judgment mm-hmm. my righteousness. Sure. It's, it's interesting because I, I always heard uh, you know, in those churches that I was doing that. Filthy Right. About right.
1: Yeah, having uh, that righteousness my own by of having one that's by faith. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that. that's what's going on either. I mean, it's it's not an either or. It's a false dichotomy. Um, it's a both and. I mean, having the righteousness of God by faith does not mean that God literally transfers some kind of righteousness in the ledger of heaven and give it to you. Uh, we've talked about that before, but um, the righteousness we do have that's from God, that's by faith, is having our sins forgiven. And so, by having our sins forgiven, which really made us sinful in His eyes, He forgave them of us and made us righteous in His eyes. Okay? But He doesn't provide the positive righteousness. We we are the ones that, that walk according to His commandments. In 1 John 3, 7, well, children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. And so there's an expectation here to actually practice righteousness. Now, I don't think David's saying in those psalms that he's never sinned, just like Noah's not saying that and God's not saying that about Job and not saying that about Zacharias and Elizabeth. I don't think he's saying that about anyone in the Bible except for Jesus. He's the one who's, uh, Jesus was saying in Matthew 19, he's the only one who's ultimately good, is God, who's never sinned. Um, but these other passages talk about being righteous, men being righteous. It's got to talk about something here. So we have to have two working definitions of righteous, and say that they're currently walking in holiness. And we see that the men who, who did, who were these things were declared about. Except for Job, I don't think Job ever sinned. Um, he had a confusion, misunderstanding about what was going on. But uh, Noah sinned eventually. He got drunk. David sinned eventually. You know, so it's not a permanent thing here. Uh, Even Zacharias questioned the angel of the Lord was made mute. And so it's not a matter of whether they still had the ability to sin or not. Or whether they would sin in the future or not. It's not a guarantee of no sin in the future. Um, But for someone to say that David was being self-righteous, I just just really can't accept that. I mean, he's declaring, I I think under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you have tested me, you have tried me, and found nothing. I mean, I don't know how else you can say that, unless he's lying. And in Psalm 17, 3, you have tested my heart, you have visited me in the night, you have tried me and found nothing. I have purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. For someone to come to the scripture and say that he's being self righteous here, they're, they're coming with an idea already. Yeah, they're with that, that right. They're not coming and saying, what is David saying here? They're saying, well, you know, I know none of us can be righteous, and therefore he must be being self righteous here. But is God being talking about Noah being self I mean, God is declaring these things about Noah. I think de- under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, though. Unless they're going to say it's not under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right. And so this is different than what Paul is declaring in Philippians 3. Completely different situations. Yeah. And what I mean, Paul, Paul is saying is the same thing he said in Romans 3. I'm not righteous completely because I haven't completely obeyed the law. I obeyed the letter of the law, just like this young rich ruler probably did. I obeyed the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law Paul did not obey that. He had murdered his heart towards, towards Stephen before he became a Christian. And so... Uh, you know Paul is not saying that in Philippians he he does there is a righteousness we have but it's not a positive righteousness where god gives us some kind of gives us jesus account everything jesus did now it's transferred to us you know urban luther says that you know this is your book all the sin god takes the book out he takes jesus book and puts it in it still has in your in your cover and he puts it in there and there and now you're righteous the bible never says that and so the righteous that we have by faith is having our past sins forgiven. That's what the word impute means. It means to not count against you any longer and not hold it against you, consider you as, think of you as, uh, account you as if you're righteous when you really aren't. And I'll ask you I because we all have sin on our record. Yeah, I mean Paul's
0: not talking about here in looking at thirty nine, not talking about a uh, righteousness that is putting him in like that. No. does have, he mm-hmm. says that it is through faith. Right. In Christ. He's not right. saying that it is something that Christ put in him. No. He is saying that he has a part in that righteousness by faith. That it is to be faith. Right. So if he if he departs from the faith, then he doesn't have the righteousness of Christ anymore anyway. That's
1: right. right? But see people will come to the scriptures with these Gnostic Calvinistic ideas of imputation that it means transfer and they'll oppose it upon this. Mm-hmm. We'll go to Second Corinthians five twenty-one and oppose it upon that. We'll go to Romans four and oppose it upon that. But if you read those passages clearly, it's not saying that. I mean, Second Corinthians five twenty, which I read. You may have had some questions of that in your mind as I read that. I, I thought someone might have some questions. He became sin for us. But if you have the uh, in mind the Old Testament when you're reading this, the Old Testament sacrificial system, you'll realize talking about the scapegoat. The priest laid on the scapegoat, sent the scapegoat out. The goat had no sin, he became sin for us and transferring it to him, you know so to speak, and he's walking out. But the goat didn't literally become sinful. and you're the Jesus. He didn't literally become sinful. Otherwise he's not the, the sinless lamb of God uh, who takes away the sins of the world. down about the sin. So this is taking it away. And he died outside the city gate too. That's where the scapegoat is sent outside the city gate. And so if you have the Old Testament sacrificial system in mind when you're reading this, which is what you should have, that's what Paul's working from. Paul's not starting new ideas here. He's working from the ideas he had in the past. Our Passover. our Passover, that's right. Christ, our Passover. And so, you know, that that's another way of looking at it. The, the, bl- bland, the blood of the Lamb was slain. Put on the doorpost of the house. You're in the house. You're saved. It passes over you. But just you know, it doesn't mean that the people who are in the house have never sinned before, or didn't do anything that's worthy of God's wrath or judgment, or that they something got transferred to them. By faith. It's by faith. It's by faith, it's it, faith that you faith you slay right you slayed the lamb God. by faith. You put on the doorposts and believe what God said. But that's obedience too. Faith and obedience are sin
0: and okay. Right together. Right.
2: faith Right.
1: Right. And right. so in Him we are the righteousness of God. so David was Oh yeah. There's nothing worth de- declaring the truth about yourself. Uh, people would say that uh, you know if you say that you're living holy, that you're that oh you're automatically prideful. Well, that's begging. That's begging the question. You, the question you're begging is your own position that you can't be righteous, and therefore, if you say you're righteous, you must be prideful because that can't be true about you. But they haven't proven anything. The only way someone could know that you are living in sin at all times, if the Bible declares it, which the Bible does not, says the opposite about many people in the Bible, or if God revealed it to them. Uh, so unless they're claiming some special revelation about me, and something I'm a- unaware of, then they can't declare that. Only God could know that.
2: that preaching, that for a long time, then, do you <coughs> think you're humble? I'm pretty humble, I think yeah. That's when he started going off on all this. You think that's humble? Accusing people of being partial. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah so th- they can come to the the conversation with their ideas in hand, but if they haven't proven their ideas, it's not going to help them any in the conversation. Um, their assumption in saying that someone's prideful by saying that they're obeying God at this point in time is that you can't obey God but they haven't proven that and the scriptures say the exact opposite in fact you ask someone where the Bible says you can't obey him they'll quote Romans 3.23 which doesn't say that they'll quote 1 John one eight, which doesn't say that um, and there's probably a few other ones I don't think on the top of my head but they'll they'll say these scriptures they'll say you're born a sinner Romans Romans, yeah yeah the one we just read that passes they'll, they'll quote that sometimes uh, but, like I said, their interpretation of Romans 3, 9 through, I think, 12, whatever it was we just read, it doesn't fit the whole counsel of Scripture.
2: The context. You the whole point. Right. Too. right.
1: That's the point being made here. It not deal with the context. It's not, Paul did not have Calvinism in mind. Did not have total inability or total depravity in mind. No way. But they'll come to this text trying to prove that. Yes, I agree. No one is righteous, no not one. And equally, I see 729 says that man, you made man upright and they sought out many devices. And so God made man and then they sought out. They have perverted themselves. All the like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah 53 says. But you have to be in the pen to go astray. You know? James 3, we're made in God's image.
0: Lot by Calvin, yeah. Right. Huh? How, how do do
1: well, of course they pour—they pour into that monergistic regeneration that God does all of it. You're not doing anything. Um, which I wouldn't submit to that. You know, if we look—you look at other passages like John one. Uh, let's see here. i go to Titus three in just a second here. I'll buffer with John one here. John 1:12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Uh, so Titus 3, uh, verse 4, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, it has appeared to all men, according to verse 11 of Titus 2. Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So uh, regeneration is something God does in response to what we have done. Not works of righteousness, but our faith towards Him. I see where they use that whole
0: righteousness, imputed righteousness, right? So right?
1: It's not our, we
0: can't do anything. Right. There's no good that we can do, none of us are good. I right.
1: see how that can be Yeah, regeneration is not caused upon you doing good deeds. It's not like you have to do good deeds for a period of time before God will regenerate you. You have faith in Him. He washes you with regeneration. He renews you with the Holy Spirit. Um, and He puts the Holy Spirit within you. And no amount of works causes that to happen. Faith in God and his promises towards you is what causes him to do that.
2: That's here, so to the
1: right. That's exactly what I had in mind a second ago when I was thinking about it. Yeah, Galatians talks about that did miracles happen by works? Well it happened by faith.
0: Right. Yeah. So this righteousness here in Titus, this would be like a self righteousness, but it would be talking about that that would be. Yeah,
1: Paul is talking about uh, Trying to obey the Jewish law right. to be saved.
2: Right. right. Okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Paul is constantly dealing with the Jewish issue. If, ha- if you have that in your perspective, in your mind, when you're reading Paul's uh, writings, you're going to understand a lot better. And I don't know of one Calvinist yeah. who I know who has that in perspective. When they have Martin Luther in perspective. And what he thinks to have John Calvin or Augustine and what they say about this in perspective. There's no, historic at all. There's no, no. There's a no historical context. It's the wrong history. <laughs> it's it's 1500 years too late. 1500 years too late. That's the mm-hmm. kind of history they have in mind.
2: Get that, which I only recently got, maybe the last six months or a year. It all begins. To, wow, that, that makes
1: sense. Yeah, I mean Romans four talks about uh, you know Abraham being saved by faith by believing, and it was counted to him for righteousness. And then James two says, "Faith without works is dead," talking about him being justified by works.
2: So it shows almost like, and that, that type of idea that they were like, "Okay, it was all by faith," and then went too far with it already back then, and we're saying we don't have to do anything. Well, that, that's we're and that's saying no good works are what save you, not not the works of law. They're trying to say.
1: Well, Paul Paul addressed that. He said yeah. he said in verse eight of right before we started reading today of, of chapter three, mm-hmm. he said and, and why not say let us do evil that good may come. Yeah. That's exactly something. If you look at some Luther quotes, he said the same exact thing. Yeah. He actually said that. He said as we are slanderously reported as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just.
2: So he's trying to say Jews are saying, "Oh, you're you're un- you're being lawless."
1: Yeah, that yeah. People are gonna that's he's addressing a potential objection, maybe an objection he had already heard yeah, from yeah. Jewish people. Let us do evil that good may come. I hear you hear that they still I talk to Jews lately. As yeah. we are slanderously reported, as some affirm, we say, he says their condemnation is just. If I'm to say that.
2: Yeah, there's Jewish Christians. Some of them have because of how bad the church is today. They have almost a sound objection in that. Though, to look at the church and be like, "It is lawlessness." Mm-hmm. What they're saying right now. Yeah. Sure. And, I'm like, and their condemnation will it. be just. Yeah, Romans
1: 6.1, he addresses it again. I mean, we quote this in the open there all the time. Uh, shall we, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Right before, he's talking about no matter how much you sin, grace can cover it, grace can forgive, grace can pardon you of it. But does that mean we should keep on sinning that grace may abound? Of course not. Oh, yeah. The, you know, you, you the know, just right. shall live by faith. So when just faith. A lot yeah, of the people that you, you know are in the true
0: brethren that think that they're, they have imputed righteousness. Uh-huh. But they will talk a lot about walking by faith. Right. You need to walk by faith. You need to walk by faith. So they're basically saying, you're saying you need to walk in righteousness. Right. Because Hopefully they're saying that. You righteous, but they may not believe yeah. that. Yeah. You stop walking by faith and you stop walking, living in righteousness. You're not abiding in Him. You're,
1: not in you're withering away.
0: So, it's almost another way of saying the same thing. Right. right? Yeah. in righteousness, you practice righteousness, you're righteous. Yeah. If you live by faith, you're righteous. Right? So, it's just kind of the same, same thing.
1: He yeah, became the author of eternal life to all those who obey Him. Yeah. Hebrews 5 9.
0: As it comes together.